0: It's Anthony Chadwick from the Webinar Vet, welcoming you to another episode of Vet Chat. I'm really pleased today to have Dr. Martin Whitehead with us, uh, researcher, veterinary surgeon, ex uh, also from Liverpool, an alumni of Liverpool University where I studied as well. So great to have you on the uh, podcast, Martin. Hello. And we're going to be talking today about hyperthyroidism, which I know is one of your many passions. But oh, perhaps yeah. before we do start, tell us a little bit about that very uh, varied history that you have on your slightly uh, circuitous path to becoming a vet. You've done some really interesting stuff before you actually trained to be a vet, didn't you? Yes,
1: yeah, so I did a, um, a psychology degree um, and then I did a PhD studying basically how, how ears work, uh, and at, at that time it wasn't really uh, known at all how they work. Uh, they can detect sounds so small it just seemed impossible, and it was worked out that there's actually a, a mechanical amplifier inside your inner ear that vibrates in response to the sound that comes in and builds up the, uh, the, 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 the vibrations in the ear, and little sounds leak out of the ear as a result of that, and they're called autoacoustic emissions. I did my PhD trying to work out how they were produced and how they relate to hearing. And that went on to be, uh, um, uh, to lead to the development of clinical tests. So newborn babies are tested with that to see if they can hear these days. And as I was working away on that in the USA, I, I worked in um, Houston and Baltimore and Miami studying this stuff. Over time, people who were interested in wild animals would call me up and say, can you use this test to see if they've got hearing problems? So I went off to San Diego and we caught elephant seals and other seals on the beach and tested them and I tested manatees and other things. And at the same time, I was sort of losing interest in the, the, the science way of life. You, you, you end up spending your life getting grants rather than actually doing the science. So I retrained as a vet thinking I might do wildlife stuff. But then I got really interested in the internal medicine. (laughs) So that's what I do now.
0: That's fantastic, Martin. And obviously, we've all heard of uh, the BAER test, which I know at Liverpool, Jeff Skerritt was a a big fan of that. This is obviously, uh, you know, a further development on the test as well, isn't it? A more recent test, your uh, O2 acoustic emission test, which, as you say, it must be very satisfying to see a test that is now used Internationally, and that you were involved in developing.
1: Oh yeah, it's, it's it's great to look back and and see that you've done something useful <laughs> among a team of lots of other. People no, it's really good.
0: Of. Yes, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And I know uh today we we wanted to talk about hyperthyroidism. I know it's a, a big interest of yours, and obviously as a great cat lover, it's it's been a big interest for me as well. And I remember researching it when I was doing my dermatology certificates. Um, and i because I had a case uh, a, a cat that was just sort of licking and scratching and actually by treating its thyroid medically, we stopped the scratching and this had been a cat that'd been on steroids and everything and it was quite a complex case, but we got it better. Uh, and and really at that stage, hypothyroidism was building up in it in its incidence because this is a disease that if I if my uh, memory of the literature is right was really only, diagnosed in the 70s, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, Mark Peterson in America. As a definitive
0: diagnosis.
1: Yeah, he was the one who yeah. recognised it. About 78, I think. And it does yeah, seem Yeah, I to think it
0: was 78.
1: Just, yeah, not been around before that. Uh, and now it's just incredibly common in the Western world.
0: And it's really interesting. Obviously, both of us keen environmentalists, I remember reading a report about, you know, coating of cans, uh, but I know you also think there's other pollutants that are involved and actually you've seen some of the research on that so perhaps tell us a little bit about why you think hypothyroidism has come from kind of not very common at all to becoming such a such a a common endocrinological disease in cats
1: well yeah the 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 truth is we don't know why it's become so common um, but there are suggestions there's Probably a genetic component because certain breeds seem to be a bit protected—Siamese um, and Tonkinese, yeah. Burmese. Um, so that does suggest maybe a genetic component. Um, but the that there's a lot of uh, circumstantial evidence, correlations really between levels of certain chemicals in the blood of cats. Uh, th- uh, hyperthyroid cats have high levels of these chemicals in their blood compared to age match control cats and then there's risk factor yeah. evidence from epidemiological studies where hyperthyroid cats compared to control cats uh, are found to say eat more fish flavored food or to eat more tinned food mm. and that might indicate that they're uh, being exposed to certain chemicals that have a structure, a chemical structure that you could imagine could be playing about with your thyroid glands. So
0: hmm.
1: um, we don't know, but it, it's quite um, plausible and suggestive, the evidence that's out there, that there may be endocrine-disrupting chemicals causing a hypothyroidism in the same way as endocrine-disrupting chemicals are causing things in, in humans as well and, and other species.
0: Because, of course, there is so much... Chemicals, drugs that that are excreted by us if we take tablets and so on, that can go into the waterways and obviously can go into oceans. And we also know clearly the amount of plastic that the stat I had recently was by 2050, there'll be more plastic in the ocean than fish, which is, you know, just a terrible thing to imagine, isn't it?
1: Yeah. I mean, but it's not just um, drugs coming out of people, Um, it's industrial chemicals. Um, pesticides and one of the key um chemical groups that are thought may be involved in causing increasing the risk of hypothyroidism in cats is flame retardants put into furniture obviously flame retardants Mm. are a really good idea for for obvious reasons yes but possibly they are involved in in the etiology of hypothyroidism too
0: it's like anything it's it's risk analysis isn't it you know How many people's lives have been saved by flame retardants in sofas compared with, you know, potential risks of them or cats getting thyroid disease and so on. Um, Moving on from the etiology, obviously, we've made our diagnosis, which is usually relatively routine, although there are some challenges. Do you want to talk about anything around diagnosis that you think that sometimes we can make a mistake on diagnosing hypothyroidism or or perhaps not not diagnosing it
1: um, yeah i mean there's a whole range of issues most cases are, are very simple really um but yeah um quite a lot of older cats have that are hyperthyroid and have a thyroid hormone that have a thyroid hormone in the top half of the normal range and it's something I have notice in cats that are referred to me, some of the cats who come. I look back through the history and for several previous blood samples, they've had thyroid hormones, maybe 40 or 50, where the top of the normal range is 50 to 60. Um, and they have yeah. eventually the thyroid hormones come above that range. But it, I would imagine those cats have been hypothyroid, but not recognized for quite some time. Yeah. Um, obviously there's the well-known problem that uh other diseases can suppress your thyroid hormone so um you, you, that, that's one way of missing hypothyroidism um yeah. so the, yeah the, there's and the the other i guess awkwardness is while most cats are, are pretty classic they lose weight they eat more and the rest of it some cats they have this, uh, what they call atypical hypothyroidism, and they're more like a sort of hmm. generally ill cat, they might be off their food. Um, but some you know, occasionally, you see cats who are hypothyroid that way, so they're not eating a lot, um, they're quite quite different. So, they can be I think
0: different. it's more and more, yeah, it's more and more recognized now because, of course, you know, a lot of the geriatric profiles that we might do for a cat, we're looking at kidneys we're looking at liver but we're definitely also most of the time there's a t4 in there as well isn't there
1: yeah absolutely and quite a lot of the cats who come to me haven't had uh well maybe the owner hadn't noticed anything um but they have a pre-op check for a dental or just an old age check or whatever yeah. and uh then when the vet says well, well the, the the thyroid hormone levels up have you seen anything have they been eating more and their owners go like, oh, yeah yeah i thought so. And it's sort of one of the problems with hyperthyroidism. It's such an insidious, slow onset. And the cats tend to be maybe a little more active and they eat more. So they actually look to owners like really healthy cats.
0: Yes. (laughs) And maybe lose a bit of weight. And if they've been overweight anyway, that's been a good thing for them. Yeah. What's your sort of favourite treatment options then? Or how do you decide which treatment you're going to use, sort of medical, surgical, or or perhaps sort of a, a radioactive isotope uh, medical treatment?
1: Well, you've actually got four treatment choices, uh, and they all have their places. Um, there's medicine, yeah. but also uh, the very low iodine diet. Um, and they're yeah. management options for the disease. They don't cure it. Uh, the, the thyroid is still there. Yeah growing away as it were slowly over time Uh, and then you've got two curative options which are surgery and the radioiodine therapy now obviously I run a radioiodine unit so I tend to be pretty keen on that Um, but it is I think generally regarded by the experts that the radioiodine therapy under most circumstances is the gold standard treatment um, partly obviously because it's curative uh, partly because it yeah. doesn't involve uh, a general anaesthetic for a, a sur- as, as surgeries do uh, and yeah. partly because it has an extremely high success rate um, and yeah. a pretty low side effect rate um, really the only real side effect it can have is to make some cats hypothyroid um, there's also this yeah. business where if a cat has pre-existing renal disease, um, and then you cure the hypothyroidism, you reduce the yeah. glomerular filtration rate, and and you can expose that pre-existing renal disease. That's not so much a side effect; it's uh, as such because you're just exposing a disease that was already there.
0: Mm. Um, so, but the high, the high basal metabolic rate that, that the hypothyroidism was bringing was protective to the kidneys wasn't it
1: exactly yeah the, the glomerular filtration rate is is higher yeah. so more fluid is going through the kidneys so it gets rid of the uh, urea and creatinine more effectively yeah um but there are times when radioiodine treatment maybe is not such a good idea um apart from anything else it it's uh, quite an expensive one off cost um it, it's yeah. over years it's probably cheaper than um, buying the drugs month on month and doing yeah. the blood tests that you often need when you're using drug treatment. Uh, but if, say, yes. you've got a 17-year-old cat, um, you might be better off, or it might be cheaper if, if a cat's not insured to treat it with drugs than it is to use radioiodine yeah. therapy. Or if you say you had a, a cat with some sort of cancer and it becomes hypothyroid, um, well, if the cancer is going to be life-limiting, maybe you don't want to be spending two and a half thousand pounds treating with radioiodine if, in four months' time, the cancer is likely to have killed the cat. Mm. Um, so, just,
0: just interestingly, with the thyroid gland, um, what are the sort of percentages of uh, tumorous thyroid glands compared with, you know, a simple hyperplasia? And do we know how that kind of hyperplasia develops?
1: Um, uh, the the percent of cancer thyroid carcinomas I- is very low. Um, the, the figures often bandied about something like one to two percent. But obviously, a lot of those studies tend to come out of the places that get hypothyroid cats referred to them. Um, so yeah. it, I think the incidence in the general practice population is a bit lower than that. Um, certainly, the cats yeah. I see, and again, I get a lot of the ones that don 't respond well to medical treatments, uh, and a lot of those yeah. just have as it were standard but severe hypothyroidism, but the carcinomas can be included in them, and i 'm probably seeing about one percent of cases that have a cancer hmm.
0: How are you recognizing those? Is that palpation they 're bigger do you do uh, cytology on those what what's the kind of how do you Laura's spot those
1: Sometimes we don't recognise them. Um, but um, yeah. if the the risk factors for for having a carcinoma are bigger goiters uh, for sure. Yeah. But most cats with a big goiter don't have a carcinoma. Having a very yeah. high thyroid hormone level for sure. But still, those with yeah. a very high thyroid hormone, most of them don't have a carcinoma. Um, yeah having a very high thyroid hormone level, but not having a palpable goiter because sometimes they, they sort of sink down into the thoracic in that You can't feel them. Um, yeah. and having been hyperthyroid for a long time, years, even if you've been on medication or if the cat's been on medication, because you can get a sort of, um, uh, the, the standard sort of adenomas and hyperplasias can undergo a sort of, um, uh, a transformation into a, a proper cancer um hmm. and another risk factor i would say is cats who've been stably treated with medication for a long time and then they sort of lose control and you're upping the dose of the thyroid medicine to very high levels and still not controlling it so those are suggestive um, but, um, really to, to sort of nail it, I'm afraid cytology has been shown to be pretty much useless to tell, um, cancerous and non-cancerous right. apart. Yeah. Histopath can do it.
0: Histopath, um, yeah.
1: Um, but then obviously you'd probably be removing at least, uh, the, most of the goiter you can feel anyway, because why would you do an incisional one? You do an excisional. Yeah. Um, and other than that, you can do maybe an MRI or a contrast CT um because you're looking for mets around yeah. the cat, and also scintigraphy where that where you inject pertechnate uh, there's not many places in the uk that that do that a couple of the, the vet schools do for sure um so they there are ways to try yeah. and tell but another um i guess you call it um very very strong indicator but you don't see it very often is if the goiter doesn't move in the neck so normally uh you feel the goiter and it sort of flips and It moves under your
0: thumb.
1: If it doesn't do that, it's probably an invasive um, thing. So that is very likely to be a carcinoma.
0: So is that where, if you're suspicious of that, you may do surgery? And is there an argument post doing that, if you think there may be METs elsewhere that could be hormonally active, that you would still give radioactive iodine or would that not be effective against the METs?
1: Well, the, the... Standard treatment we do for for your your typical hyperthyroid cat, um, we give about anywhere from seventy to maybe up to one hundred and eighty megabecquerels of the units of rate of iodine we give. um yes. you certainly can treat carcinomas, um, thyroid carcinomas, with radiation, but it's more like a dose of eleven hundred Um and whereas the treatment for standard hypothyroidism has an extremely high success rate, up in the high 90s percent, the treatment for yes. thyroid carcinomas is a lot less certain. It certainly does work, and it has cured some cats, but yeah. uh, uh, it, it's not something it's... If people bring me a cat, I can almost guarantee them that I'll get it better if it's, if it's uh, got the standard hypothyroidism, but I certainly wouldn't say that yeah. if it's got a, a carcinoma.
0: A carcinoma. No, that's really interesting. And and obviously, I remember Ian Ramsey's a great friend of the webinar vet. I went to university with him. He, I think, set up one of the first of uh, the radioactive iodine centres. How many are there in the country now, Martin? Is uh, this becoming a more and more common treatment? Fifteen that I know of. Fifteen. Uh,
1: yeah, so uh, s- several in vet schools, um, yes. a few in the big referral places, um, so willows in Byrne, sorry Hull has got one pride referrals hmm. chester Gates, jeff Skerritt again uh, <laughs> I, I don't yes. know if it's still there but, but he set it up yeah um uh, anderson laws have got one and there's there's a few places like myself where we're um i, I suppose we're we're not big referral places but uh um I higher grade first opinion places um, yeah so yeah
0: 15, they're satisfying cases if you can give one injection it saves and it sorts the problem out otherwise this is a problem of compliance because clients will have difficulty in pilling cats won't they
1: oh absolutely yeah and it's one of the big pluses of radioidine therapy and obviously surgery too is, is they they don't have that problem of every day once or twice a day yeah having to treat the cat and even if they're going off on holiday and yeah, so it's it is a great thing, and many cats obviously hate being hate having tablets and drops and stuff shoved down them.
0: Yeah, and obviously it is radioactive. Yeah. What are the sort of safety precautions that you're taking, and then how long is the cat with you before the client can pick the cat up up again?
1: Yeah, uh, the. <laughs> The radioactivity is is the bulk of the work, to be honest. The treatment is in itself really a doddle. You have to work out the right dose of radiation yeah. to, to give the cat and make sure it's suitable for the treatment. That's for a vet a very easy thing to do. Um, but to set up a unit it is quite an undertaking in itself. Going through, you have to get a permit yeah. from the environment agency, and that is uh, a, a, a scary amount of work um you have to have a suitable site um you, the the cats uh, and the the vials the radiation come in have to be shielded from the public and your staff and the easiest mm. way to do that is just with distance um so you, you can't really set up a radio iodine unit in a room in your hospital for instance uh, or if you did, you'd have to have a very large amount of lead, which is expensive yeah, and
0: expensive.
1: heavy to put on on a wall. You need a very, very solid wall to do that. If there's someone upstairs, you need to shield your ceiling. If there's someone downstairs, you need to shield your floor. Yeah. So the best thing is to have a, a, a sort of building outside or at least on the back yeah. of your, your hospital um and many practices just don't have we were lucky we had some extra land on our site where we could put such a building and then when you're working it is all it's it's about contamination so we wear aprons we double gloves actually we use rectal gloves um visors and and masks and overshoes and the levels of radiation are not that huge obviously it's safe for the cat to uh, be injected with it. Yeah. So it's not that sort of immediate damage. What you're protecting yourself against is an increased risk of cancer from exposure to radiation over your life. Um, you yeah. all get background radiation at a very low level. Um, we all occasionally have x-rays or CTs. Some people work in industries where there's a bit of radiation. Um, if you get on a a jet plane and fly abroad you're getting an increased exposure to radiation and you just want to re the more of that you have the more likely you are to get cancer when you get old so really that's what you're trying to avoid it's protecting stopping yourself getting contaminated now to reduce your risk of cancer in 30 years time is what it's about
0: (laughs) Mm.
1: Um, but it's Um, it's,
0: what sort of how many cases are you treating a year martin
1: at the moment, we do about 160 a year, um, and, and that's increasing year on year. And we, we've got the capacity to do probably yeah. 400 a year for, if, if, if it builds up to that, which maybe it will one day. Um,
0: so you have perhaps space for two cats at any one time. I no, know we, they're in for a few days, so they may be in and out. Yeah. Twelve.
1: Twelve at any one time.
0: And they're all at different stages because some of them will come in the next day. They will get their injection, and then are they usually for about five to seven days? Um, it, three to
1: ten days. So we we have, have one or two cats have gone home after two days if they're given a very low end dose. Um, but yeah, yeah and our maximum time in the radioiodine unit, unless say it was a carcinoma, they'd be in a bit longer. Our maximum standard time is ten days.
0: No, it's fascinating. It's um. What was the history of of finding this? This was presumably used in in humans first, was it, and then translated across to cats?
1: Yeah, it's been used in humans since the nineteen thirties, I think. Might even have been nineteen twenties. Um, right, and okay. yeah, we we just vets just modified it. So I I think again, it was Mark Peterson who was the first person to do it in America. Yeah, um, but it's been used since I think early eighties uh, in cats. Cats cats in some ways are actually a bit better designed for it than people. People have only one thyroid gland. Uh, cats obviously have two, sometimes a bit of ectopic tissue. Yeah. So I think cats are less likely probably to become hypothyroid uh, after the treatment. Yeah. Uh, but still plenty of them do. And do you
0: ever have some cases where you've had to go back and give a second injection somewhere down the line?
1: Uh, only one, in fact, um, out of well over 500 cats we've treated and and that one almost got better it just the t4 didn't quite get down into the reference range yeah so i mean that shows you the success rate yeah
0: it's it's fascinating martin that is a pretty good success rate if you had that for all of your medical cases you'd be quite happy and i think very popular with uh with with pet owners wouldn't you yeah
1: and and we we do say to people when they come if if we don't fix your cat in the first injection the second one's free, uh, as I say we've only done one second injection so far.
0: Right, it's a it's a good guarantee. <laughs> Martin, it's been great uh, speaking to you. I think it's um, it's really good that we have these treatments for our for our feline friends uh, for what has become you know a very common condition. Uh, obviously, we need to look at why that's happening and perhaps learn more about the etiology and see if there are ways that we can prevent it but i think once the disease is there and this seems like a, an excellent treatment compared with uh, operating which was always a bit of a scary surgery wasn't it you know you were worried about hitting the parathyroid glands and things like that as well and causing issues so it's uh, it seems very low risk compared with with the surgery
1: it is low risk it's a little bit more expensive uh, i mean a unilateral thyroidectomy mm. is, is a fairly quick easy thing really um but most cats who have a unilateral thyroidectomy become hypothyroid within a year or two yeah uh, with the other glands so but the bilateral one is you know it does have quite a high complication rate especially with this the low calcium mm. because of the parathyroids yeah
0: and the, the nice thing is, of course, the iodine is very specific to the thyroid, so it doesn't attack the parathyroid gland.
1: Exactly. Beautifully um, yeah. specific. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, fantastic. Martin, it's been a thrill to have you on. Thank you for all the great work you're doing in this and, and in your other uh, sustainability and environmental areas. All
1: right, thank you very much.